Season 2, Episode 11, The Christmas Invasion. Don't talk, just listen. Nothing that she can do 
nothing, nothing except praying, please, 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 to the blank and uncaring night for chance or miracle either to intervene. Please, she begs, please, please, please. Above it all is the man McRae, his ruined visage triumphant. His face always wears a grin, thanks to a bullet, but the grin is especially gleeful as he lounges on his sofa with a glass of scotch and his fuzzy pink bathrobe. He too once knew that nagging emptiness, but now his heart is full. He looks upon a shattered world and calls it his. Soon, he will remove the tiresome distractions and his daughter will be truly his once more, for the first time, forever. And then he will be free to serve his dark master until it is time for him to ascend to stand by the death god's side, a god in his own right. And somewhere else in the keep, unthought of and uncared for, a boy named Terry offers up not prayers, but dreams. He has only now become used to the sensation of going to sleep in a warm bed with a full belly and a contented mind. Most of his sleeps in the city of the black sun were silent and black, and for this he was grateful. Blank empty was a welcome relief from the horrors the world had to offer. But when Head Order Officer Mustafa took him in and eased his most immediate terrors, Terry discovered his dreams made up for the lack of new horrors by making him relive old ones again and again. For a while, at least. But Terry's dreams have been calm for a while now, ever since he came to embrace Mustafa's care as something real, something honest, something he could trust. Which made the nightmare that much more of a betrayal. Terry sat bolt upright, his scream carrying him from one world to the other. Mustafa was in the other room, trying his damnedest to wrap the box containing the near mint condition sneakers he had borrowed one actual, literal, get out of jail free card for in faded wrapping paper. The tape kept catching on his skin, and the paper had been rendered gossamer thin in the years of disuse. When the boy he'd come to love as a son began to scream, Mustafa was on his feet and hurling towards the door before he even had time to process his own reaction. How was it possible that this strange child could have so completely changed the entire world and way of life in so short a time? He went through the door at a run, but the bedroom was empty, save for the bed 
in which the boy sat and screamed. What? Mustafa demanded, adrenaline pumping. What's the matter? He had been there for the night terrors. He was ready for the night terrors. But this was not that. Terry was wide awake, drenched in sweat and staring about the room as if phantoms swirled around him. Mustafa looked around just to make sure that there were no actual phantoms swirling around. You never could tell beneath the black sun. The boy began to calm himself. Mustafa crossed to the bed and sat on the edge. Terry looked away, ashamed, as if trying to pretend that there had been no incident. But his shirt was still drenched, his face was still flushed, and his breath still came quick and shallow. It was, it was just a dream, he said. I know that. I'll be okay. Mustafa cocked his head to one side. I told you I wouldn't give you a hard time about your past, Terry. But what was our agreement? Terry sighed. No lies. But I'm not lying. It was only a dream. Mustafa said. But it wasn't just a dream, was it? The boy hung his head. Gently, the man said, what was it? The wings growing? The pit fights? Was it? He hesitated. He saw Terry's shoulders tense. Was it Mike? The best friend. The best friend who was maybe, possibly, potentially more than just the best friend. The boy that Terry had loved until a bullet evaporated him from this world. Mike may have been the one who died, but what Terry continued through could hardly be called living. He saw his friend die each night, every night, blood and brain leaving a permanent scar against the gray slate sky. I saw Mike, Terry admitted, but it wasn't a memory. It wasn't, it wasn't what happened to him. I dreamed, I dreamed that I was drowning. All around me was red water going up my nose and down my throat and it was, it was clinging to my clothes and dragging me down. There, there was an opening of light ahead of me, but I couldn't get to it. I knew I couldn't get to it. And then there was Mike's voice. Just like when I thought the lonely was going to kill me back in that fighting pit. He told me to fight. Just like he had then. So I did. Because, because it was Mike. Mike telling me this. And Mike, Mike wouldn't leave me wrong, would he? Mustafa held his silence. I started thrashing against the clothes. These clothes, they somehow got around my neck and started choking me out, so I had to tear them free. When I did, when I got them off, suddenly I felt so much lighter and stronger. I swam towards the light like I was a fucking, sorry, like I was a freaking fish. The opening was tiny, almost a crack, but I knew that I could get through it, and then I did. When I crawled out of the opening, 
I saw the ocean had been just a puddle. And I saw that I was, that I was. He could not look at his guardian. Mustafa placed a gentle hand on his shoulder. It's okay, Terry. It's okay. I was the gargoyle again. I was me again. Terry turned his head so the tears would not be so obvious. Mike was there. Only, only it wasn't him. It looked like him, but it was, it was him after he died. His skull was open, like a watermelon after someone took a fucking hatchet to it. I'm sorry. And there was, I can't explain it, but I couldn't shake the feeling that this thing in front of me might look like Mike, talk like Mike, might even think of itself as Mike, but it wasn't him. It was something else wearing the greatest Mike costume it could come up with, so I would listen to what it had to say. And what Mustafa said, did it have to say? The look Terry gave Mustafa stopped the man's heart cold. It was the same look Terry had worn frequently during their early time together, in the immediate days at the Order Maintenance Pavilion. Yes, it was a jail. After Mustafa had pulled the boy clear of the mounds of shredded flesh and splashed gore, that was all that remained of the once popular fighting pits. They hadn't been anything to each other then. For Mustafa, the boy was a witness to a crime and an intriguing story to uncover. For Terry, the man had been the latest in a long line of those who claimed the compassion, none of whom had been worthy of the trust which he gave unto them. Terry had been a while relearning how to use facial expressions the way other humans did. In a way, it had helped their relationship, as Mustafa never really needed to worry about what Terry was feeling one way or the other, as the boy was incapable of hiding it. So when he saw that Terry distrusted him, he knew it was sincere. But the expression softened. He told me that a lot of people were going to die tonight, Terry said. He told me that friends from outside the walls were coming as part of a rescue mission, but they were walking into a trap. A rescue mission? Mustafa stared at the boy. Coming to rescue you? Do you want to be? Not me, Terry said, impatient. No one even knows I'm alive, let alone cares enough to come and do something about it. No, no, there's a girl, and that's who they're coming to rescue, and that's who they're going to die for. Terry, Mustafa said, I would know if anything like that was happening tonight, and I promise you, there's no ambush that's been set up. Again, that look of distrust. It was only a flicker, and Mustafa could see Terry resisting it. But buried feelings are felt all the same. And Mustafa found that he could not fathom losing this boy. Not now. Tell you what, he said. I will look into this right now. Out of curiosity, who is this girl we've apparently kidnapped? That last bit of distrust wavered on Terry's brow. 
Cassandra, he said quietly. Her name is Cassandra, and she slew a dragon. Mustafa entered the Mammoth Grace chambers, feeling a concern he could not describe nor explain. He had walked into this very room to give and receive more debriefings than he could count. Why should this be any different? Why should he have anything to fear? It shouldn't be. He shouldn't have. But the air buzzed with the tension he felt. And he was afraid. Oh yes, the man and his woman, the murderer, Betsy Overby, remained standing, the rims of their glasses still touching, the crystal kiss still sounding with a slight, shrill tone. Mustafa slowed as he neared them, taking in the scene. The man McRae might have been outfitted for a comfortable evening indoors, but Betsy Overby was dressed for war. Beneath her mask of mud and camouflage, her eyes glittered with triumph and delight. Mustafa had seen this expression on her face before. Usually, whenever she was walking away from some new horror that was likely to turn Mustafa's stomach as soon as he laid eyes on it. He had no doubt her eyes had glowed just this way after she killed Mike. She should have been killed then, there, right on that fucking spot. But instead, she had been taken under the wing of the man McRae, and he had indulged her appetites, learning just how deep they ran, just as Betsy Overby discovered them herself. Mustafa looked from one to the other, what are we toasting? he asked. The man McRae finally broke the clink link and stepped away from his underling. He took a drink, exposed teeth skittering against the edge of the glass. Victory, the man McRae said. Miss Overby successfully rooted out an attempt by some radical outliers to breach our borders. The ship sinks and the rats flee. We've been trying to impress upon people the dangers that these groups pose to us, Betsy Overby cut in. Coexistence may have been a possibility before the kaiju, but with resources so limited, well... It's no wonder desperation is in bloom. It'll come down to a simple choice, really, as all things do. Them or us. Mustafa felt his spine go stiff. He struggled to keep his tone even. So, 
it will be war then. Only, <laughs> well, it's not really a war when one side has resources and weapons and an unchecked desire to kill. That's more along the lines of what we call an extermination. As I've said, Betsy Okabai replied, we've given coexistence a fair chance. We forgave them when that last group of outliers broke through the borders and brought that horrible plague that claimed there was no plague, Mustafa roared. There was no rabid fever. You made that up so no one would think that anything bad could happen here. And I... And you, the man McRae said. You made your choice. He had, hadn't he? They had not threatened him. They had not bought him. And they had not taken any action to make his life harder. But when the official story is being developed, they made comments about Terry that may not have been threats, but sure felt threatening. The three of them stood there for a while, silent, each of them seeming to consider what was going to happen next, what was bound to happen next. Was there a way out? Another option? No. The choices had all been made. The cards had all been dealt. There is nothing left now but to hold tight to the hand you held and see where it led. Whatever chance might have remained, Mustafa broke it when he said, Who is Cassandra? Betsy Overby gave him a look that might have been pity and turned away. The man McRae stared at him. Is that name supposed to mean something to me? It should. She, whoever she is, is the reason this new crew tried to break in. And how, McRae said slow, might you know that? Mustafa's lips curled in a tight smile. Swatting this aside as if it were a fly, the man of gray said, What difference does it make to you who she is? I am the head order officer. Am I not? He addressed the follow-up to the back of Betsy Overby's head. Am I not? If the head turned at all, the shift was imperceptible. If people are breaking into the city to find someone, it behooves a man of my position to understand what all the fuss is about and how it might be fixed. The man McRae and Betsy Overby exchanged a look. She is a prisoner, Betsy said, still not looking at him. And what, Mustafa said, calm, is she imprisoned for? The silence began to sap away the heat from the room. Mustafa swore that in a moment more, his breath would become visible. Fine, he said. Next question. This rescue attempt, did you leave any 
survivors. Now, Betsy Overby turned to him, blue eyes electric, alive, cheeks flushed. Mustafa was familiar with this look from athletes who have just had the run they know will net them Olympic gold, who have just poured their heart into a game and the final buzzer has just sounded. It was the look artists wore after a marathon session of creation and focus has left them exhausted, depleted, satisfied. Completion, yeah, that was the only word for it. Betsy Overby looked complete. She had been placed on the world to complete a function, and now it was done. None, she grinned. Well then, Mustafa said, I suppose that's that. Yes, the man McRae said, his hands folded behind his back. There's nothing more. With a word of thanks and good night, Mustafa turned and walked out, the order officers once more dropping in step behind him. The man McRae and Betsy Overby regarded each other for a long time, the man silently resisting the messages her face telegraphed, the demand she demanded be fulfilled. At last, the man McRae crumbled. Fine, he said, kill him. The men trailing Mustafa had been trained by the best. They could move amongst shadows like a fish can water. They could stay sharp on a trail even with four or more blocks between them and their quarry. They could intuit a man's path before it even occurred to him to move his feet. Indeed, in the entire city beat the Black Sun, the only person more skilled than these two was the one who had trained them, which was, of course, Mustafa. After making short work of losing his escort, Mustafa doubled back. The guards in front of the man McRae's building nodded as he passed. There were procedures in place to register and log every person who came and went through those doors, but this was head order officer Mustafa. He had written most of those rules. He had taken great pains in writing those rules, just as he had taken great pains to learn every inch of the building so he could better protect it. He knew the pathways where no one patrolled, and he could walk unmolested. There were places in this building that the man McRae had demanded be blinded. Mustafa knew that if he had really pushed he could have quickly learned all there was to know about the man he worked for. It had been easier then to be blind, but no more. 
Feeling very distant from himself, Mustafa arrived at the door he had never been told never to enter, but which possessed such a sense of foreboding that it almost radiated like ultraviolet rays. This, the man McRae had always communicated without saying, was the edge of the map. Beyond it, there be monsters. Mustafa kicked the door in. Beyond the door lay a cozy and well-decorated apartment. Mustafa stared at the interior as if it was a UFO, although the UFO might have made more sense. Everything from the big box desktop computer monitor to the dull pastel color scheme screamed comfortable wealth of the early 1990s. What the hell was this doing in a building in the city beneath the black sun? He crossed the room, not wanting to touch anything out of an irrational but unshakable fear that if his naked skin touched anything within the room, the infection would spread across his flesh and convert him into another bit of set dressing. Through the door on the other side of the room lay a hallway. On either side of the hallway were doors, and through those doors lay room just as perfect, just as false as the apartment. A childhood bedroom with ersatz wood floors and walls and ceiling. An office that looked like a museum exhibit for the 1980s. A dorm room that strove for a relaxed atmosphere that could only truly been achieved with a thick layer of bong smoke clinging to the air. This is his life, Mustafa realized. He's tried to package and contain his own life. He pushed further on, no longer bothering to check each door that he passed. That is, until a muffled cry from one of the rooms stopped him. This door was locked and had no portal to see through. In for a penny, Mustafa thought, and he forced the lock open with three hard shoves. His eyes were almost scalded blind the moment he entered the room. The hot pink color of the floors and walls and ceiling stabbed his corneas, so much so that he even threw a hand up to defend himself. When he lowered his hand and let his eyes adjust, he could see that this was a bedroom and was stuffed to bursting with what could only be described as girlish decorations and toys. But they were girlish in the same way that a clown's painted smile approximates actual happiness. Dollhouses towered like gothic mansions, while dollies leered with crystal eyes and frozen mouths, curled in what were probably intended to be mild smiles, but by the light seemed converted somehow into sneers. Lace and frills piled on top of one another in the garish gowns and dresses that were stacked and spread all across the room. The pantheon of Disney princesses glared balefully down, dissatisfied deities. The source of their dissatisfaction was a woman bound to the bed, her hands cuffed to the posts and her mouth bound by a gag. It was her writhing and protesting that had caught Mustafa's attention, and at the sight of him she began to writhe and protest even more. Mustafa leapt across the room and freed the gag from around her mouth. Who the hell are you? Each asked the other at the same time. I'm head, I'm Mustafa, Mustafa said. Are you Cassandra? Her eyes widened. Did Priya send you? Her eyes narrowed. Did my father? McRae is your father? Yeah, but don't hold it against me. 
None of us get to opt for our own biology. Mustafa set to work attempting to pry the bars to which the cuffs were bound apart so Cassandra could slip the cuffs free. The metal squealed as he strained at it. Sweat coated his arms and hands and pooled along his back and did not notice how the shadows in the room began to stretch. So if no one sent you, Cassandra said over the squeak and protests. What are you doing here? I didn't say no one sent me, Mustafa panted. Just not those two. My, this boy I look after, named Terry. Terry! Cassandra exclaimed. He's alive? The last I saw him, he was being... And you said he's a boy? Not a, a gargoyle monster? Mustafa finished. He chuckled, though the humor had a wheeze in it. He's told me about his interesting life. He's human now, though I couldn't tell you how or why. Cassandra opened her mouth to ask one of the hundred questions that now occurred to her. Which let the matter settle. Only to grow agitated a moment later. Hurry! She suddenly cried. Priya and the others, they're on their way, and they don't know that McRae set a trap. We have to warn them! Mustafa's grip slipped, and he rested a moment, his head on the bar connecting to the posts. Are you hearing me? We have to do something, quick! Mustafa raised his head from the bar and met Cassandra's eyes through the posts. There is nothing to be done. She stared. You... You mean... He nodded. They're dead. And it was precisely at that moment that Priya Patel slammed the handle of the sickle blade into the back of Mustafa's skull. Priya Patel raised the sickle blade and prepared to swing it at the downcast body. Wait! Cassandra yelled from the bed. Priya stopped, turned, smiled, frowned. What the hell are you wearing? she asked. Cassandra was still in the polka dotted nightmare dress her father had ordered her to wear for Thanksgiving. It might not have been the exact same dress as the man McRae apparently had a dozen different versions of this same dress that he made her cycle through, but the fluorescent vomit tone was always the same. It's... It's a long story. How are you not dead? I fucking should be, Prepatel said. But this one here turned out to be a good get. Mr. Mayhew rose out of the shadow just as Pri Patel had a moment ago. He held his arm stiffly by his side, dribbling red dots denoting his passage. He stepped towards Cassandra and with a wave of his hand and a mutter from his lips, the handcuffs fell with a clatter. Right when the ambush went off, he grabbed me and dove into a shadow, Priya went on. She handed Cassandra a bag containing some of her old clothes. With a look of endless gratitude, 
Cassandra tore the dress off and began armoring herself in her comfy jeans, loose t-shirt, and hood. As she dressed, Priya went on, I thought he was going to bash our skulls in on the side of a concrete wall, but instead we sank into the shadow and ended up in some other place. It was dark and cold and there was, there was this music like I can barely describe. It made my skin crawl, but it also called to me somehow. I think, well, I know, I probably would have gone to it. But Mayhew here grabbed my hand and led me forward. I don't know how long we were walking that awful place, but even though all around us was the same oppressive black, I could feel movement all around me, or somehow sense that we were passing through huge chambers with ceilings like cathedrals, or passing through corridors that shrunk around us as we went. You, she said to Miss Mayhew, said that you would explain. I said I would explain later, Mr. Mayhew snipped. And it is still yet now, with later a good way off. Where we were was kind of in between, let us say. It's incredibly dangerous, especially for more than one person. There's a great deal more to learn about it. Even perhaps way back home. To our real home, I mean. And while I will be happy to regale with my brilliance at some other time, for now, we really need to hurry up and get away from here. Cassandra finished dressing and stood. She and Pri Patel shared a longer look. Later. Yes, there would be time for that later. For now, one's hand squeezed the other, a first taste of remembered intimacy, a promise for more. We need to make one stop, Cassandra said. Terry, the boy who helped me kill the kaiju, he's here too, and I can't imagine a lot of nice things to say or do to him once we get out of here. What part, Mr. Mayhew fumed, of it's incredibly dangerous for more than one person are you struggling with? I don't even feel safe trying to transport two of you through that realm. We're only doing it because every other plan was fucked before it began. But go. Mustafa stood up from the floor, rubbing his head where Priya Patel had bashed it. I'll take care of Terry. With a little luck, we'll join you soon. Oh, let's be honest. Luck has never been an especially reliable friend in these parts. We can't leave you, Cassandra said. Sure we can, Mr. Mayhew shot back. You will, Mustafa said. And will all of us agree to live long enough for you to pay me back for that shot to the head? Priya flinched, and Cassandra smiled. Mr. Mayhew gave Mustafa a respectful nod, and then he took both women's hands in his own, said another strange word, and drew them back into a shadow. They sank and were gone. Still rubbing his head, Mustafa stepped out of the room, only to come face to face with the man McRae and his approaching soldiers. For a moment, everything froze. Everyone was too surprised to react. When Mustafa saw the guns in their hands, he got over his surprise quickly and started running 
even quicker. No! Screamed the man in the gray. He lunged past his soldiers and into Cassandra's room. The absence hit him harder than the bullet had. No! He screeched. No! 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 Kill him! Kill this boy! Burn the fucking city to the ground if you have to! But kill them all! The sirens rose in time with the fire in Mustafa's lungs. He surged through the world in a blur, not feeling the railings he bounced off, nor the cement under his feet, nor the sweat heavy on his brow. He ran. No thought, no instinct, just that urge, pure, run. He took his own front door at a sprint, the door crashing off its hinges as he went literally through it. Terry was still up sitting in the living room with a poorly wrapped package in his hands. What? No time, Mustafa said, seizing him and hauling the boy behind him. He saw it all now, saw the whole bloody future stretched out before him. McRae would use this kidnapping, which was really more of an unkidnapping, but few would know that, as an excuse to launch total assault on the so-called outliers. The human race was an endangered species, but for power, McRae would hasten and decline until only he and his select chosen few would be allowed to reign over the ruins. And when that was done, what next? There had to be some design to McRae's madness, some higher plan, but Mustafa could not have guessed. All this was for later, like that magician had said. For tonight, it was only the matter of survival. Mustafa stepped out the door. Mustafa dove back in the door just as the first bullet slammed into the door frame. He all but tackled Terry backwards, flipping the dinner table over so it stood between him, the boy, and the bullets. He curled his own body around Terry's. Not enough, he thought. Not enough. God, please. I was supposed to keep him safe. One last prayer for the night. Glass shattered. Wood splintered. Terry screamed into Mustafa's chest. It sounded like the end of the world. But in the next moment, Mustafa had forgotten the glass and the wood and the screams. For you see, the shadows had begun to lengthen once more. Terry, he said, then louder. Terry! A familiar face appeared. Terry and Mustafa were so taken aback they did not notice the lull in the barrage. She made me come back, Mr. Mayhew grumbled. Both of them, actually. Both of the she's. Well, come on then. What? No time, Terry, Mustafa cried. Just take his hand. Terry did so, even as he goggled at the man who had climbed out of the shadow. Mustafa took the magician's other hand. Terry and Mustafa and Mr. Mayhew were so focused on this 
they did not notice the footsteps racing towards them. Mr. Mayhew spoke the magic words. Mustafa felt himself begin to sink. A bang drew his attention back. The last thing he saw before the shadow overtook the world being Betsy over Bai's mad grin behind a gun barrel exploding with fire. Mustafa blinked, and all was dark. No, not all dark. There was a kind of ambience that allowed him to see himself and have some vague sense of space, though all that space was occupied by dark and more dark. Was this death? His heart still beat. His clothes still clung to his sweaty body. If this was death, it wasn't much of a change in either a positive or negative direction. Mustafa! Terry's voice. He followed the boy's cries, feeling the space expanding and shrinking around him as he went. It was an entirely unpleasant feeling. That guy, Mr. Mayhew, couldn't let him out of here quickly enough. There! Terry! He yelled. He ran to the boy and pulled him into his arms. Are you okay? Are you hurt? No, Terry said. No, Mustafa, it's... It's Mr. Mayhew. Is he hurt? Instead of answering, Terry pointed. And Mustafa saw that no, Mr. Mayhew was not hurt. He was in no pain at all. The bullet had torn clean through his skull. It was entirely likely that Mr. Mayhew had felt only the mildest of pains before disappearing to where there is no pain, no longing, no fear. Terry looked up at his guardian. What do we do now? Mustafa considered. He considered the dark, the cold, the great, blank, uncaring, and had no idea what to do next. Merry Christmas.